from across the globe. From the centre of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start off with the... This is a picture of the first flight, which was in December 2015. We started the project... Um, it, late 2010, and I thought it would take a year or two. It took five. Um, Dash stands for, for dead, simple, human-powered airplane. But um, as Bill said, it didn't turn out to be quite so simple. Um, I'm going to show you a video of that flight. Uh, you'll notice here... I get into a little bit of pilot-induced oscillation. That's because the, the tail surfaces were so light that we slowed down the servos to about 5% of their normal speed. And that was slow enough to get me out of sync with the airplane. I realized it in the middle of the flight and let go of the stick, and then you'll see what happens. The plane basically just levels out and flies really nice and straight. <laughs> but you'll see another thing that happened here in a moment to the vertical tail. Uh, um, that's most of what this talk is going to be about is the things that didn't go right that, that uh, we learned from because that's the way you learn we're going to come back to that video again one more time and so we're going to talk about dash design considerations test flight results I'm going to show some videos of successful flights. Then we're going to go into the failures that uh, happened and how we overcame them. And um, then finally, I'm just going to touch on a few thoughts on the f what, what the possible future of human-powered flight might be and the d ideas that I've had about it. And I want to show another video. I'm losing my mouse here. There we go. So this just shows a, a more close-up shot. This is at Moffett Field, California, uh, sort of halfway between San Jose and San Francisco. I'm flying this one. It's just a kind of a good close-up shot to show you what's going on. We have a simple twisted chain for the transmission. Uh, it's a tractor propeller. Um, it's, it's very similar, similar to the Daedalus in layout, but everything is newly designed, except we did use the Daedalus airfoils. And I'm not the greatest athlete, so I, the longest flight I've done is about uh, 725 meters, but we have several athlete pilots who are, you know, quite fit and light and should be able to fly this for miles and miles. So far, the longest we've flown is uh, just under two kilometers on, on several flights, half a dozen flights. Um, and we're basically limited by the length of the runway at Moffett Field. So design considerations. Um, I wanted it to be a low design and build time and to be able to put it together for field assembly. I designed for 2.5G structural limit because I wanted it to be robust enough for a lot of people on the team to fly. 
Um, I was aware that the Daedalus made it all the way on its amazing flight and then broke right before it landed. And I, um, I knew that would make the airplane heavier, but I was willing to live with that. And then I wanted a fit normal person to be able to fly or an athletic cyclist to be able to fly for long periods of time. We tried to keep things simple. Um, you know, it's just, it's not very difficult aerodynamic dynamic equations you have to use. Uh, we designed it in metric. Um, the U.S. is sort of stuck in the old imperial system for aviation for some reason, but, and that kind of bothered me, so I decided to do the whole plane in metric. And a few, a few fit, fittings here and there snuck in that weren't metric, but mostly it is metric. And we, the, the most important part of the slide is we built on previous HPA successes by, um, you know, copying good ideas that other people had, getting advice from lots of people all over the world, from, from UK, from Canada, from, um, from Japan. I went to go to the Birdman rally and talked to a bunch of teams there. And that really helped us be successful from the very start. We did do full finite element analysis on all the part on all the carbon fiber uh, tubes in the plane, but we didn't do panel codes, CFD stability analysis, airfoil design. We just used Daedalus airfoils. It's a two-axis airplane, no ailerons to keep it simple and light. And we did, in the end, you'll see one of the problems we're going to discuss. We did do a more complex analysis of the torsion. Uh, and the aeroelasticity um, issues with the plane. So HPA challenges are low power, so it has to be really light, but the wings have to also be really long to keep the induced drag down. Well, those last two things really fight against each other because really long wings have really big bending moment, and so you have to add weight to withstand that. So that's the challenge. Um, I built this spreadsheet with all the aerodynamic equations in it and basically played around with it for a while to figure out, you know, how big does this airplane need to be? I wanted the previous goal I had up there was to be able to fly it for several minutes myself and for really fit pilots to fly for a long period of time. That means you have to be somewhere between 3 and 4 watts per kilogram based on pilot weight. So we were shooting for um, the max weight pilot is 90 kilograms and... Uh, we're shooting for 300 watts for a pilot of that weight, which is, works out to 3.33 um, watts per kilogram. So that's how I came up with the configuration. It's all about span in the end. Um, area and aspect ratio matters a little bit, but what I did here is I took um, Juan Cruz, the Daedalus project, made these set of predictive equations for how the weight would expand um, and what power power it would use and everything for HPAs built sort of uh, extrapolated beyond Daedalus in, in various um, directions. And so I put a 90 kilogram pilot in, in there and used the weight that came out of that equation and then I just swept through a bunch of spans and, and wing areas and basically what you see is my 300 um, I'll use this my 300 uh, Watt target means you really want to have a wing above 30, um, 30 meters in span. I went for 33.3 for the base version, and then I built several different wingtip extensions that can extend that even further to further lower the induced drag. Important point is this is all out of ground effect, um, not counting on ground effect at all, and that's based on talking to um, people from the Daedalus team who did measurements that showed that there really isn't a ground effect. 
uh, for some weird reason for human-powered airplanes, and um, also the Gossamer Albatross team experienced that as well. And basically, this is just showing, you can, ba you can think of the um, vortices coming off of the wings as uh, the representation of the wasted energy uh, from induced drag. So the longer and thinner your wing are, the smaller those vortices are going to be and the less drag is going to be. But at some point, going back to this slide, um, the weight of the spar is going to increase and the profile drag is also going up as the wing gets larger. So it's, you know, you can't build an infinitely long wing for many reasons, maneuverability, et cetera, but you actually don't have any benefit at a certain point. You have to cut it off. Okay, and so just a few pictures here of sort of what the dash looked like. Um, this shows you it, the primary airplane breaks into five sections that are 6.7 meters long. And then I've built these various different um, wingtip extensions to make further uh, versions of the airplane. So uh, the, we only flew the 33.3 meter version on that very first flight. And then we've almost always flown with this one. And lately, we've flown a 40 meter span version, which is out to here. You'll also notice that there's one lift wire. That lift wire um, strut basically has about 8 watts worth of power due to drag, but it saves about 8 kilograms of weight, and it's roughly 3.5 watts per kilogram extra that you need for extra weight. So you're saving 30 watts by expending 8, so it's worth having that strut. This gives you an idea of the size. This is the 33.3-meter version of the plane versus a 737. And just a few pictures here of the construction. This very light. This is one of the outer wing spars I'm um, balancing on one finger. Uh, the propeller. The whole propeller weighs under a kilogram. This is tests we did with various candidate pilots and wannabe candidate pilots for DASH. We, we actually tested about 40 people. This was just, I think, eight of them. I'm the blue line, so, and this is when I was in really good shape and lighter. Um, so you can see that I predicted to be able to fly between about five and ten minutes. Um, and the purple line is one of our really fit pilots. Actually, he'd never been a pilot before. He's a, a great triathlete, and he just took to this like a duck to water. He, he was, is our most natural non-pilot pilot. Um, but he, he ought to be able to fly this airplane, assuming that our calculations are correct for, you know, ages and ages, as long as he has enough water and food. And he's the first person who flew it to one, one kilometer, to one mile, to two kilometers, and we're waiting to do longer flights. Uh, just a few photos here, oops, of the test um, that we did, the, the bending test. We did a 1G test, and then we did a 1.5G test. And this was done at the Hiller Museum in um, San Carlos, California. We had to calculate and make sure that <laughs> it would actually clear the Wright Brothers replica here, just clear by about six inches. And it... Okay, so a few more construction photos. This is also at Hiller Museum. I'm just going to go through these quickly just to give you a sense these are the, the anti-buckling biscuits under manufacturer that go inside the spars and the fuselage tubes. 
and this is the tool, this was borrowed from the AeroVelo folks uh, who did the, who won the Sikorsky Prize for human-powered helicopters. It's a way to, um, you can't see it in these photos, but there's a syringe in the middle, so you can put the glue in and place the biscuit at the same time. This just shows the uh, skeleton of the fuselage, and this is our hot wire machine cutting out the airfoils. You use this tool to um, make a jog in the, in the rib cap so that there's clearance for the leading edge. And we found that, that moisture couldn't come out because of the metal, so we bought a panini maker to, uh, <laughs> to force the moisture out faster. We could turn it around in about two hours with this without you had to wait an entire day. Um, let me skip forward here a little bit. This is showing the rib cap manufacturer, and that's a, the final rib, and then you slice the ribs out very thin. And that's all the laser cut parts for, I think, one wing section. <laughs> and it's just showing the whole process of putting together these ribs. You have to have hard end ribs. We call them hard, but they're actually filled with white foam in the middle. But they're full balsa sheeting on the outside, and they're thicker. Because if you don't have hard ribs at the end, when you tension the mylar, everything sort of collapses in on itself. And then this is after we put it all on, on the main spar and rear spar. And I think I'm going to skip forward because I think I got caught in a too, too many of these pictures here. Let me, okay, skipping forward. Um, This shows you only have a six millimeter space to put these leading edge panels on. And so what you do is you make it a little bit wide and then you cut this three millimeter land on it and then that, the next one you have to set on that. So it's a little bit of a you know, complicated process, but we got pretty good at it. Uh, once you have the leading edge panels on, you tape the mylar on and that's a fi finished outer wing panel and the finished wing. This is the, the flight simulator. And this shows how the joints are put together in the fuselage. We um, glue them together, but they're so thin, about 0.4 to 0.6 millimeter thick tube, except where they're spar caps, where there's extra thickness, that you wouldn't have a good glue joint. So what you do is you put Kevlar, aramid fiber, around the outside, kind of like uh, sticks and twigs, but then you use epoxy to... Um, to lock it in place, and it actually makes a very lightweight, strong joint. And then this shows how we made the ribs for the fuselage fairing. It's um, laminated balsa wood around these nails, and then some very lightweight carbon fiber to make it a little bit stiffer. And then we put these mylar-covered boards on and glued it up with a truss structure in the middle. And that's the fuselage, making the seat seat in place before the fuselage was finished. This is the prop shaft before it got glued in place, and then this is glued in place in the front of the fuselage. And a little bit about the, um, the propeller manufacturer and the finished propeller. And last but not least, the transport. This almost ended up being as hard of a project as building the human-powered airplane was building this trailer. And we found out when we were almost done with it 
that for about half the price we spent on this, this is the one thing we hired out to somebody else to do was building this trailer. We did the design, but they built it. We could have bought a 28-foot um, uh, race car trailer that has much more area than this, and we could have just hung the wings inside that trailer. <laughs> so that's one of the lessons that we've learned. Okay, so flight test results. We flew in the end of 2015 once. In 2016, we flew about 25 more times. We had a crash in the middle of that. We'll go over that. And we had a torsional divergence of the wing near the end of 2016. We'll go over that. In 2017, after we did a lot of analysis and, and fixes, uh, we had 25 more flights, several of which were two kilometers. We dialed in the uh, avionics and the telemetry finally, so we were able to get the right airspeed so that the, the drag was at its lowest. And that helped us get long flights all the time. And in 2018, just, uh, that should say January, not June, um, we uh, uh, went to the desert to try to do even longer flights. Um, had, had some difficulty there, got some flights in, but didn't go any longer than two kilometers yet, dot, dot, dot. So totally we, in total, we've had nine pilots fly at 57 flights, over 25 kilometers and over an hour, if you add all the flights together. Uh, our main testing site has been Moffett Field, um, just north of San Jose in, in Mountain View, California. Um, and we get to use this runway, the, which is about a two-kilometer runway, and this is about a 2.5, I think. And, so, and we can't quite use all of it here, and they have the X's closing in at each end, so we have to land a little short. So that's why we're sort of limited by two. I think it's 2.25 and 2.5. And so our flights have been limited to about two. Okay, so now we're going to go back to more videos. Oops. This is actually, we prepared, um, this is back at Half Moon Bay, our original flight site. Um, this is the longest flight we've had by a female pilot so far. Uh, about a kilometer long flight. And we went back there just before we went to the desert to, because it's about an hour and 15 minutes away from home base just to have practice operating away from home base to make sure that we brought all the right tools and all that kind of thing. And I really like this video just because uh, it was taken from a drone by... Um, uh, we have a news photographer in the Bay Area who's really into aviation, and he comes in and films all of our stuff for free and just loves doing this, and he likes playing with all his toys. So he... Uh, he had a drone following her all the way down here. Um, you'll notice how much the tail kind of waggles back and forth. Um, we've planned to uh, make a stiffer horizontal tail, but I, I don't think it really makes a huge impact in the, the power or anything, and it seems like the plane is perfectly controllable even with that little wag. Okay, I'm going to skip to the next video. This sort of just sort of shows you the typical operating mode. We have a wing runner on each side stabilizing it because we only have wheels in the center. And then we have two bike chasers on the side whose job is basically to catch those um, again when the flight's done. And uh, this is Craig, the pilot I was talking about, who every time is the person who does the next longest flight. He's just been sort of a natural pilot. This video is actually taken from one of the two chase bikes. So you can see the chase bike here on the right side, and this guy who's taking the video is the chase bike pilot that's going to 
catch this um, line hanging down from the, the middle of the semi-span there uh, at the other end of the flight. Um, pretty, pretty typical flight. We limited ourselves to five meters of altitude just for safety reasons. You'll see in the video I show in a minute that why that's probably a good idea. Um, and we're going to probably bump that up to seven just because we have noticed as we finally started getting up to four or five meters, I'd say he's about two now because the, the fuselage itself is two meters from here to here. So maybe he's two and a half, three. Um, when we get up around five meters or a little bit above, we notice that it's smoother and that it's easier to fly. And it seems like that's like the transition area. So as we're trying to do these longer flights, we're letting ourselves creep up a little bit to seven, but I wouldn't want to go much higher than that just because if something does break on the plane, we won't, don't want to have that far to fall. I'm going to zoom ahead here on the video just to show you what a typical landing looks like. This, this is basically the full length of the runway he goes. This is one of the nearly two kilometer long flights. And we will be able to see the landing here and people running for the uh, the wires, but um, it's going to be with the bike tilted sideways because he has to place the bike down. We've actually had a couple times where people failed to place the bike down before they chased after the wires, and the bike sometimes rides by itself, and that can be a real danger for running into people and the airplane itself. And you'll, you'll see there that he catches on that side, and the other guy catches it before we have a problem with the uh, wingtip hitting. Okay, another video. Uh, let's pause this one. Now this is pretty cool. If I can get my mouse to work here, having some trouble with that. Um, this is a 360 camera. And so, first of all, this gives you a little bit of a sense of what it's like to fly. You'll hear it get quiet in a second. Now I'm flying. Now I'm really flying. <laughs> so it almost looks like I'm still on the ground, but I'm a, a meter or so above the ground. But with the 360 camera, you can basically go look at me huffing and puffing in the back. Or if we had looked over to the side earlier, you would have been able to see the wing chasers. They tend to keep running after the airplane for a while. It's kind of, kind of funny. But eventually it'll be um, the guys on the bikes that are following after. Um, if you go on to my uh, YouTube channel, there's a bunch of these 360 videos, and on your phone, you, you look by moving the phone around, and it, you can actually, if you have one of those VR things to stick your phone in, it's completely immersive in 3D, and it's, it's, it's very cool, so I recommend checking it out. Um, and just a few more videos here before we go into the, uh-oh, there we go. This is sped up 10 times, just sort of showing all the little corrections being made to stay online. The plane, it's, a, it's kind of a weird plane to fly because since we don't have ailerons, it, you have to count on yaw roll coupling with the dihedral to cause it to roll. And it's maybe 10 times less responsive in roll than it is to pitch. It's very twitchy in pitch. We try to fly it in pitch only with the, the trim buttons. Um, and uh, But... I found it actually quite nice to fly in. It is it, it turns when you want it to turn. It does what you want it, what you ask it to do. Now we've had some non-pilot athletes who didn't have very much experience and 
over controlled, and this is an example. This can show, this is in some cases on this flight banked much steeper than I ever want the plane to be banked, but um, she did a good job of, of controlling it. After this and another um, pilot had a similar problem, we did a bunch more training on our um, our flight simulator. We have a, a <coughs> flight simulator with the dynamics of our airplane in flight gear that the pilots have found is very useful because it really is quite like flying the actual airplane. Um, and so we, we took the pilots through some retraining there and and then the next time she flew and the next time Ariel, the other pilot, who um, had a very similar zigzaggy flight going back and forth, flew, they, they flew nice and straight and, you know... They're basically learning how to fly as they're as they're flying this thing. Because we did take people on sailplane flights as well, but they didn't find that as useful as the flight simulator. Um, and then we went to the desert. I think I mentioned uh, just recently, just last month. And the idea was to try to do. Nobody has set triangle or out and return records for HPAs yet, so we were trying to set a record at the same time. We're learning, hey, how much extra power does it take to turn, and what's it like to turn this when you're turning intentionally, you know, not just over-controlling on it, trying to go straight on a runway, but doing an intentional turn of 90 degrees or more, excuse me. Um, but we ended up running into a bunch of problems. We had the biggest storm in Las Vegas in 80 years in January flooded out the dry lake bed we were going to go to, so we went to a different one which had a rougher surface with cracks larger than our front wheel, which was a problem. And then just the extra dra drag on the ground of the bumpy surface meant it, made it very hard to take off. So we built this huge plywood and, and um, mel melanite or something like that uh, runway. Um, eventually, we got uh, six flights in, the longest maybe about 700 meters. And um, this, this, I think, is the longest flight. Again, this is taken from Walter's drone, and it's pretty dramatic um, surroundings there. It's, it's, a, it's quite an experience to be out there, and we learned a ton while we were there. And notice that we have these white wing tips on there. So this is actually the 40.3 meter span version of the plane. Those extra tips, extra length on the tips, two more meters on each side compared to the normal wingtip extension we have on there um, were uh, supposed to save about 25 watts of power. But we were at 800 meters altitude here, and that basically wipes out that, that gain. So, you know, this is a reasonably long flight. He was having some PAO problems. We found out later, and I forgot to include this in the, in the presentation, but on the very first flight we did, we had a really hard landing, and we broke the joint um, in the frame between... Remember that joint I showed you a, a few slides back? The frame uh, between the chain tube going up and down and the seat tube, which is right where the bottom bracket is. So every other pilot was like, something's weird with the airplane, and one before one of the pilot's flights... It was like the the fuselage fairing was way off kilter, and we couldn't figure out why. And we're pretty sure that that 
broken joint was robbing us of additional power because the whole frame was flopping around. So we're going to be fixing that and going to a near sea level area, uh, a old closed World War II uh, base that already has basically a 60 degree angle between two of the runways um, and try to do some more triangle stuff there uh, at the end of next month. Okay, now... Uh, and this just a histogram I made of about 40 of the flights. Uh, just to give you an idea of the, the length of all the flights we've done. Since this was made, more of the flights, longer flights are out here. This histogram is going to sort of shift more over to, the, to this end because we got the avionics dialed in and people could trim at a good speed and we, we really kind of dialed it in. But I just didn't have that uh, data in this slide. So a few more pictures of what it's like to fly. You set up in the dark um, and then fly at dawn, basically. And you're, you're limited by the thermals and um, that come up on the runway surface, the tarmac, and the wind that usually comes up later in the day. We've had a few times, especially in the, the desert where we were just at, where we had to quickly drive our big vans and vehicles and RVs in front of the airplane so that things wouldn't blow away because the wind came up very suddenly. You know, it's just a few miles an hour and all of a sudden you have a 10 mile an hour wind way more than the plane can fly in. I really like this photo. That was the very first flight at Moffett uh, just after dawn. The sun is sort of behind, just behind the hangar in the way that made his neat silhouette. This shows you, you know, we get, this is probably four, four and a half meters up. Um, and just a few more photos. These are power meter readings. Um, this is a, a sort of typically you see takes more energy to accelerate and take off. And then as you settle down, we're flying probably at about the same altitude the whole time here, but you start using less power as you kind of learn what you're doing. This is a longer Oh, I, okay, I cut out that. And, th and this is um, coming in at around 300 watts, which is what we're expecting because this pilot weighs almost the max weight. So it makes us feel good about the, um, you know, the predictions that we came up with in terms of performance. This is, uh, I think, later in the same day when things got bumpy and thermally. So take off power and then, oh, it got bumped around and you had to put more power in, more power in, more power in. So the average here down here is still pretty reasonable for most of it, but it really makes a huge difference. Um, just a couple more pictures of flight. Okay, now the fun stuff. So I'm just going to go over things we've learned and show some fun videos. Um, we built a prototype our second prototype uh, propeller when our designed and engineered prop spars were not ready yet. They were late. So we got some carbon fiber ski poles and used those as the spar. And this is what happened. Um, so, uh, just so you know, we, um, we did finally get the proper spars and did the same kind of weight test, 
Um, and uh, everything worked great with the, the props <laughs> that we really used. Um, and back to the first flight, we talked about, I think I'll fast forward just a little. Maybe a little bit more. So watch that vertical stabilizer again. These are offline, both horizontal and vertical are offline. So what happened there was we did proper testing with um, car top testing of both prototype shorter tail sections and then the full actual flight articles. Um, Uh, I guess my slides got mixed up, but we did we did proper proper testing on on the truck, and um, it was fine uh, at 1.25 times normal cruise speed with full deflection in each direction. Um, but we cut a flange a little bit small, and uh, it broke uh, in in the field. So we repaired it by just by making the flange bigger and also putting a strut in the middle of that V bracket. Um, so I think we're going to come back to that. I think the slides just got a little out of order. We had a, a testing setup failure where we had a leak in this, um, in this forklift and we left it overnight and the forklift basically leaked and went like that. And we also untied a safety cord that we had to prevent it from moving back and forth. We had sort of single point contact and we were lined up correctly. And because we didn't have that safety wire attached, the whole thing rolled off and broke, broke a bunch of the ribs and trailing edge. But we're really lucky because this piece of aluminum stuck right on the edge of that fork of the forklift. And if it hadn't, the whole thing would have done a complete 360 and just ripped all, all, our entire wing and all the work we'd done apart. This looks pretty bad, but all of these things went back kind of like a puzzle piece. Every place where there was a little buckle in here, we put a little Kevlar patch on the trailing edge. And then every one of these breaks in the, in the um, spar or the ribs, we just put a little balsa wood doubler on each side after gluing it back together. It added maybe 100 grams to the whole plane. And that's the wing that we've been flying with the whole time. This just shows you know, a place where we, we glued it back together and then just put a little extra doubler on each side. OK, here's to the tail mount failure. So um, I'm just going to talk to all this stuff, so don't bother trying to read all the words in here. Um, so on the test article, this flange right here was just a few millimeters larger. And of course, that's where most of the force is, is going to be put on this, is down at the bottom. Um, but on this, don't ask me why, we cut it a little bit tighter. And you can see here it's opened up. If, if I had taken the right picture, I was able to pull this up and just delaminate it all the way around here and all the way to the other side. So what we did is we glued that all back together, and then we added a bunch of, uh, this is the original article, it's really subtle because it's just a few more millimeters of that flange causes it to not break. This is testing on the uh, car top with that test article. So what we did is we made really big flanges with a couple layers of carbon fiber on inside and outside and then put a strut in the middle and we haven't had any problems. Added maybe 200 grams to the entire airplane. 
we had a king post wire mount failure uh, on the second flight day in Half Moon Bay. And so we tried to jerry-rig something together with aramid fiber, but it didn't really work very well. But this is an example of something that broke, and then it actually taught us something, because eventually we want to fly without the kink post. That adds about 5 watts more drag. And you can see, here's us trying to fix it. Um, but even after we, we you, the wire is there, but it's really not doing much of anything, because these tips are almost touching the ground. So we had the wing runners actually hold up on the, the lift wire fitting before the wings started to lift. And then once it lift, lifted, they let the, the wing cords roll through their hands. And that worked really, really well. And it gave us the confidence that you know, sometime in the future, maybe at the end of March, we'll be taking the king post off entirely. And we know we'll be able to operate that way. And this is just an example of another kind of thing that happens in the field. The, um, these lightweight control rods, it's a hollow carbon tube with titanium uh, rod ends split. And so we used uh, five-minute epoxy and aramid fiber to fix it. We eventually did both ends, um, and we did the other control surface, too, just so we wouldn't have the same problem happen to us. And now we just build them that way all the time. We've had some issues with the wheels. We've used a blow-molded garbage can wheel because it was very light, but after every couple of flights, this kind of thing would happen. The tread would come off, partly because we were having landing in a bit of a crosswind. It was scraping the edge off, and then the thing was breaking apart. So we went to this couple hundred grams heavier treaded wheel, which has worked really well for us, although eventually these do break sometimes on hard landing, so you'll have one or two struts that are broken, but it'll still hold together and work. And we've also had some landing in quite quite a crosswind, which for a human-powered airplane, this is in place. For a human-powered airplane is, you know, five-mile-an-hour crosswind at 30 degrees or something is a lot. But I don't know if you can see it, but about half of the tread is, uh, got scraped off during this flight. So the next flight we did, it was the takeoff was like, gum -bum, gum -bum, gum -bum. but we have a lot of these wheels, and it only takes us a few minutes to, to change them in the field. And then we also had a new... Uh, we'll get to the crash in a minute. We had a new RC joystick and brake put in place. Uh, and then another wheel issue we had, I, I mentioned before, these cracks, some of them were wider than our original front wheel. We had a cart that we were going to use for trying to keep the airplane pointed into the wind at all times because of the tail issue we had. I'll talk about that in a second. But the cart broke, so we stole one of the wheels from the cart and went to a machine shop and had them weld up a new fixture for our wheel, and that's what we ended up flying with in the desert. And I, I talked already about some of the challenges we had at Cutaback. We had an idle, idler pulley fa failure. We used it for about 30 flights, but we had only one layer of 2.8 ounce per square yard cloth here holding this in. It's just pink foam behind it, and eventually that broke out. So we changed it by having a double. It's a little bit hard to see, but there's honeycomb um, sandwich structures here, an eighth inch thick each, so making a quarter inch thick that the holes are then drilled into, and the, um, the nuts for the idler pulley are put into. These are three more new parts finishing after vacuum bagging. We had a problem with the chain skipping. This, is, this chain is over two and a half regular bike chains long. 
some recumbents have that kind of thing happening, um, and they, you, you'll often see that they'll have extra little idler pulleys along the chain to prevent the chain from coming off. So we did something somewhat similar. We had a chain guard. This is the top chain guard here um, that prevents it from falling off. And then that basically moved the problem to the, to the idler pulleys. These used to be the typical toothed idler pulleys, uh, 10 or 11 teeth on each. And then it started skipping off of there all the time. So we changed to, uh, this is a part that you can buy for a recumbent bike. Instead of having teeth, it just has a silicone rubber interface there and then similar kind of chain guards on the side. That totally fixed the problem and we haven't had any problems since. Okay, now back to more fun. Uh, we had a crash, it was due to pilot error, error partly because of the design of the plane and um, I'll talk about the fixes after we watch the fun video. Ironically, this is the one of the three, uh, one of three pilots out of the nine who's actual pilot of other kinds of airplane. But um, he was getting bounced around. It was a little bit later in the day. He was getting bounced around and trying to stay on laterally on on track. And he was looking at down at the line instead of at the horizon, and basically flew himself right into the ground. Now, remember, I said we were limiting ourselves to five meters. <laughs> Let me show you one more. Um, that's one of the reasons why. But um, this is, uh, whoops, it started in the wrong place. Let me see if I can find the right place for you. So this is on wing video of the same. And I'll see if I can pause it right before the crash. So this is an all flying horizontal tail. So back end down is down elevator. And back end up is, you know, relatively is up elevator. And we'll back that up a little bit. If you look, he basically just commanded down for the last, like, three seconds of this flight. He never pulled back on the stick. So that's down elevator. It's subtle, but we, we watched it and blew it up and <laughs> looked at it many times. Because we were, we were like, what is this when it happened? Is it a stall? Is it some other weird thing? Did the... Did the radio control system freak out and do something, but no, he flew it into the ground. So after this, uh, we went to our flight simulator. Let's see, I think I have a, another picture of the flight simulator again. Um, and really focused with all the pilots um, on making sure they maintain, you know, visual contact with the horizon. Um, it also was partially a design error because the stick that we were using had very little spring feel to it. And we had some little spiky bits on the place that you were uh, sort of resting the palm of your hand to stabilize it. And because he'd gotten poked by that, he tried to stabilize his hand in a different way. So when he went to the left with the stick, he was also going forward and not realizing it. Now, if he'd been looking at the horizon, he would have realized it and pulled back. So it's sort of a multi-problem multi that we fixed by... Uh, and we, ch we changed it out with a much more positive uh, uh, RC joystick that has much more positive springs. And it's just not good. There we go. Um, Greg was completely unhurt. This looks bad, but he, he didn't have a scratch on him. 
And I think I have a picture of it. It also, we were having problems with the ball bearings falling out on this turntable bearing that we had. This was actually another kind of caster wheel that we put in place after we ran out of those parts. We used this as a design opportunity to completely redesign how the airplane was built. And we cut this tube off, put a smaller tube inside it, and put journal bearings with Delrin bushings. That's worked perfectly since. Um, and then this is the flight simulator that we um, use to, to train our pilots with. It's actually a test rig. I don't know if I have a picture of it. A test rig that's got the same shape in two by fours as our carbon fiber fuselage. And it has our first prototype propellers on there. It's not tied in so that the power you're putting in actually ties into the computer program. But it's really great to have somebody putting a decent amount of power in while they're trying to fly the plane. Because I don't know how many of you have cycled or done any kind of athletic activity. But when you get up above about like 70 80% effort, your brain kind of goes to mush. And so it's, it's really important to, to have them do both of those things at the same time. And then, again, this is the, an RC-style joystick. I don't have a picture of the old joystick here. And we also put a brake in. I think I discussed that in a second. No, I don't. Um, yeah, I th yeah. It, the brake will come back in in a minute when we talk about another lesson learned. So we had problems with the vertical tail and the servos. We were really amazed as we were in the middle of building Dash the first time or maybe it was the second BHPFC, we went and we looked at the servos on Airglow. And the servos on Airglow are about this big. And the servos we have are about this big. They're really big, supposedly heavy-duty servos. And we thought, oh, man, did we really over-design this? But even so, we've managed to burn out or break four or five of these $200 servos, um, almost exclusively due to crosswinds on the ground while we're doing ground handling of the airplane hitting our large uh, vertical stabilizer. Um, not only has this, have the servos burnt, burned out, but we actually once had it be uh, so strong that it popped the servo box off of the tail boom. It was just glued on there, so we fixed that. And then we, then we came up with a way of clamping the tail in place so that it wasn't putting force through the servo, and we actually physically broke the tail itself. Um, so I guess following McCready's thing, we're designing this just light enough till something breaks and then, uh, and then seeing what we have to do to fix it or what procedure we have to do, put in place to fix it. So uh, these are a little out of order, but um, this is fixing the, the horizontal tail after uh, it broke and buckled in a few places. This is just showing the, the setup and Here's where the, the um, this is what it normally is supposed to look like, not broken off. And this is when it, the, the glue joint and everything popped off from all the force that was on the tail. We fixed it by putting some extra aramid fiber on there. And then, like I said, we, we tried a bunch of other procedures. Uh, the latest thing we did was to invent a cart where we could move the plane around on the airfield while keeping it pointed into the wind at all times. That cart failed. It was the first shot at the design. We're going to work on it and fix it, but it didn't work in the in the desert, so we cannibalized it for those front wheels. This just showing more of the delaminations and damage that we had. Um, there was the, the center rib actually broke, and so we had to de-skin it and fix it and put it back together. And one lesson we learned: the time that that servo popped off and we put it back on, 
everybody's, you know, we got checklists, we're checking everything. It was all fixed, we're ready to go again. We put poor Ariana back in the plane again. She, she, the person who had the over-controlling once, and then she learned how to fl fly the plane great, but she's still kind of nervous about flying it. We put her back in the plane, and we didn't realize that we hadn't trimmed the tail properly. So she did a really good job. She had learned how to pilot this thing. Um, here we go. This is a on-wing camera, same, same one that we were looking at, the horizontal tail position. But she basically got started in a left turn. She's concentrating right now on pedaling and taking off, so, and also keeping the wings level. Oh, it smoothed out really nice there <laughs> once she took off. And um, so she got way out off the runway, um, but eventually got herself back by realizing that she had to, had to fly back over and landed okay. So we've learned this uh, when we've had damage to the fuselage, when we've had you know, other things break and, and fixed. It's really important anytime you have a crash or incident or something happen to really, really inspect the airplane all over <laughs> to make sure that um, you haven't missed something. And, you know, it, you have this limited window of time, two or three hours before, the, and, and you've had all these people spend all this time and effort to get the plane out, and so there's this kind of go fever to get back in the plane, and you just have to slow yourself down and make sure that you um, really check everything before you put somebody back in the airplane. Okay, we must have gone. Okay, I'm going to go for about 10 more minutes and then we'll take questions. I don't know if I'll get to the future of HPAs or not. Okay, this one is really interesting. So we flew the plane successfully 26 times. Then we put in the um, 40, original 40 meter version of the wing that had a, the whole entire outer wing panel was a, a different internal structure. And I flew that for on a short flight, and then near the end of the flight, it got really wavy. I may be missing the video here. If, if we have it, we'll see it. And that got us worried, so we went back six days later with our original configuration, the, the base airplane with the wing, shorter wingtip extensions, um, with some special sticks and uh, video cameras to measure the wing twist angle all along the wing. And then we had this happen. I'm missing the, the flight of the 40-meter wing, I think. Yeah, here we go. Not important. I'm going to show, show this twice in a couple different formats, but I'm getting moving along pretty fast. I'm the heaviest pilot right at the limit, and so I'm going about 8, 8.5 meters per second. The takeoff's taking a long time. You can see the front wheel's kind of bouncing off a little bit, and then the wing starts to do some funky thing, and... You see all those uh, sticks on the wing there? That Those were all specifically so we could measure and just make sure that we didn't have too, wait, too much. Uh, do that one more time. Anyway, you can see those sticks. Just to make sure that we weren't getting close to the same problem with the 40 meter, that we had on the 40 meter wing with the other wing. And then this happened. I'm going to show another video, which is uh, four different views 
So that video that you just saw is going to come up in a second here in the upper left. But you have the left wing here, left wing here, the right wing here from the inside, and then you have a view from a car behind, and then you'll have that closer up view here. And pay attention maybe to the left wing tip here especially, and you can kind of see what happens. I don't know if there's any audio. Oops. These are all synced together. So it starts to get that normal dihedral shape, and then it starts to get flatter and flatter, and then the wing starts to get negative, and then all oh, hell. <laughs> um, and the very final failure in this, if you, if you watch right here, maybe I can pause it, is the whole wing is going very negative and it's putting a bunch of force on the front wing mount. And this is a hollow tube. We have biscuits in there, but it happens to be in between a biscuit. And so eventually it causes local buckling of the top tube of the, of the uh, fuselage. Oh, that's weird. I may have just messed up my next video. So how did we fix this, and why did it take us nine months to get back in the air? Um, I, I will read through this list. So what we did is we did an aeroelastic analysis of the torsional divergence both on the ground and in the air. It turns out if I had just pulled back on the stick a little bit earlier um, and the wing had loaded up, the, the lift vector, which is in front, slightly in front of the um, spar, would have counteracted the negative pitching moment of the airfoil, and this wouldn't have happened. It also turns out that there's, it's slightly less angle of attack when both wheels are on the ground, and there's some different dynamics that happen when it's touching the ground. So that uh, the torsional analysis or the aeroelastic analysis software we use showed that around eight, eight, eight and a half meters per second is when you would expect this failure to happen. So what we did is we made changes. We added more torsion material to the center spar. We um, strengthened the support tube, which also failed right near the front wing mount. And we added re reflex to those wingtip extensions, which took less of the negative pitching moment off. And then finally, and probably most importantly, we changed our procedures so we do a positive rotation. It's just like in the big jet. You, you call out a, a rotation at a certain speed and or time, whichever comes first. So this shows all the rib damage. There you can see the crunched front wing mount. We fixed it by putting a big plug of end grain balsa, the, the grain going up and down uh, in the damage section, and then put about one and a half times as much material as there was there before, plus wrapped it in um, some aramid fiber. And then we did torsion tests on the wing sections and compared, the, compared it with uh, a tor torsion test that we did but by hanging different weights and measuring the deflection on bare spars to convince ourselves that the spars hadn't been damaged. Because you, when you saw that wing, it, it kind of was like it was doing the breaststroke or something. It kind of went like that, a butterfly, one of those. Um, and so we were worried that, you know, do we have to rebuild several wing sections? It turned out not. Um, 
And then we did a bunch more finite element analysis and we pulled out um, wing stiffnesses and ran a special aeroelastic software um, and convinced ourselves that all these changes would work. Here's some more material added to the center. Only added about 300 grams to the airplane. Um, this is the strengthened, th this, you can't see it on this side, but this support tube in the very center of the wing section broke right where it uh, met the main spar. So we put a bunch of extra strengthening and gusseting there um, to help that. And then here you can see the airfoil with the reflex in it. And that's the, this is the first flight, so you can see the reflex. And then I'm just going to go forward and hit play. Because I wanted to leave you with the impression of the <laughs> airplane that actually flies well. So we've done uh, over 30 flights since, since that incident. Um, and it seems like we fixed it, including the last six flights uh, that we've done, or the last five flights that we've done in the desert are with the longer wingtip extensions. So three and a half meter extensions on each tip instead of one and a half meters. So I, I was intentionally keeping it nice and low here. This is me flying it again. Um, every time we do a, fix something new in the airplane or do something that could potentially break and we want to test fly it, I feel sort of personally responsible to test fly it, even though I'm not necessarily the, the best pilot in terms of performance. I always want to test it myself. Okay, and let's just go a couple more minutes and then we'll do questions. Um, assembly is often smooth, smoother with fewer people, we've found. This is about twice as many people as you can see in this or on our first flights, and we were also brand new and learning how to do it. But every time we have 20 or more people come out and help, it seems like there's negative work being done. Um, we think the minimum crew, we could probably put this together without wasting too much time, is about six people. I think the minimum we've actually had is maybe eight people. And sort of eight to 12 seems like it's the, um, you know, the optimum. Because then we can have people working on putting both wing halves together and the tail and somebody getting the avionics set up. We had a frost problem several times. And I don't know if anybody's had this other s solution, but we came up with a solution of using cling film because we're putting the, the, together the airplane in the times when the frost is going to happen. And then once the, the sun comes up, it rapidly warms the wing. But if you already have half a millimeter of frost over the entire top surface, then it takes you an hour to get all the frost off. This way, we put cling film on, on the really important part, the leading edge. It frosts up there. You pull it off, and it's just you just pull the frost up. We also aim the plane into the sun so that the leading edge is getting heated up. Uh, we talked about the trailer. I'm going to skip that. We had a seat support failure. It's a little confusing photo here because we got, had extra supports on the outside. But we had this telescoping seat support idea, um, which didn't work that great because the, when you have the seat moved all the way back for the really tall pilots, the telescoping sections were very short, so you, you couldn't fully telescope to the short pilots. So we had three different lengths of these that we had to change out, which was really fiddly. Um, we went to a new system, which is basically just doing a quick release for a bicycle into a bunch of different <coughs> slots here. Changed it from a 10 or 15 minute setup between pilots to 10 or 15 seconds.
Um, and we've had pilots uh, as light as 51 kilograms and as heavy as slightly over the gross pilot weight of me being 93 or 94 on, on a few of the flights. Um, it works out it's pretty tolerant to slight changes in CG, and when you have shorter, lighter pilots, it moves the CG in the right direction so that it doesn't, it doesn't move too much. It, it moves the pilot weight in the right direction so the CG doesn't move too much. And then we, the one thing about the avionics that I'll just mention is that um, we, we, we use an Android phone. You can see it right here. Collects data from our power meters down here. We have two of them, one in the pedals, one in the cranks. Um, our airspeed up there, a heart rate meter from the pilot, RPM, and ultrasonic and now laser altimeters. Um, we had all sorts of problems. We would have the whole airplane set up, beautiful weather, dawn, ready to fly, and then it would take us 45 minutes to get the avionics working. And probably two or three times we just said, forget it, we'll fly with what we have. Um, and we've gotten much better and the software's gotten better, but that's one of our major problems is, is having a reliable avionics system. Um, and then we, we also, Daedalus had, and, and I think the Gossamer airplanes have the airspeed center sensor right in the middle in the dead zone of the prop, but they had fair, fully fared props that fared all the way to the center. We have about 350 millimeters of round prop spar, and that was causing some weird aerodynamic interaction, and we weren't getting good numbers. So eventually we moved the airspeed off to the first wing junction on each side, and we have two, two meters. And that, getting that and getting the telemetry working on our airspeed so that we could physically tell the pilots to slow down or speed up is really the key to getting um, nice, long, consistent flights. It's really hard for the pilots to look at that little screen while they're also concentrating on flying, so it helps to have the chase vehicle person who's looking at the um, telemetry talk to them. Okay, so two more minutes and we will do Q&A. On Dash, we could have improved it by better torsional analysis. Um, if we decreased the cord but kept the wing span long, it would have lightened thing. We have overall lightening job to do and drag reduction that we haven't fully done. And avionics, we've already talked about what's wrong with that. Okay, my two-minute spiel on the future of HPAs. What do we want the future to be? Do we want it to be a club activity, an actual competition, a sport? I've heard people talk about making it an Olympic sport or an educational opportunity or all of the above. Um, I don't really have a an answer for that, I think that educational opportunity is a really good part of this, but it's really hard with the student teams I've seen to build momentum and to actually get an airplane built that flies. We've had several projects in the U.S. happening at the same time that ours has been successful that they suffer from, you know, a student works on it for a while, they go away, the next ones pick it up and they have no idea what was going on. The handoff is not very good. If it was sport, um, do do we is it is it a sport about whether it's a good athlete or is it a sport about whether it's a good HPA design or both? I kind of liken it to the difference between IndyCar, which are all the same cars and they make little tweaks, but it's basically supposed to be the best driver, versus Formula One, where it's mostly about the equipment, but the drivers sure do matter too. I like Formula One better. I don't know about you guys, but. <laughs> um, 
to me, the fun, a lot of the fun in this and is the designing and the engineering and, and, and all of that. So, um, but I think you could do both. You know, if there was a reliable kit design that was the same for everybody, you could have something where you're really comparing the athletic performance. Or you could do something where there's a, a formula that you follow and you ha have to be within that formula, but you have free reign to design it any way that you want to. Um, I'm going to... And you, it's really necessary to have enthusiastic humans to build and crew an airplane, pilot athletes available to fly it, an airplane that gets built out of that process, the money to build it, the space to fly it, and cooperative weather. We spent over $200,000 on Dash in the end. I think it could have been 50000 or less, um, but I counted you know, all the trips I did everywhere and everything else. And eventually, we had free space from Google for several years, but eventually we had to rent a space. So that's a lot of our, you know, it's very expensive in Silicon Valley to rent a space. Um, but I really am sort of motivated thinking, you know, this didn't turn out to be a dead simple plane. What is a plane that could be built in one or 2,000 man hours and maybe built, be built for 5,000 pounds, you know, under, under $10,000? I've had some ideas. I, I played around with that. I'm going to skip forward. Uh, this thing called R-Dash where you basically use thin gauge aluminum and a, and a bending brake to make a spar. So these identical pieces and you flip one over there, you put foam pieces in to help with anti-buckling, and you use uh, aluminum glue to glue it together. It's back to something more like the Gossamer airplanes, where it, at every junction of every 12-foot panel, you've got a, a support wire supporting it. But I think it, it's you know less exotic materials, and you might be able to even have something where you build the bending brake so you don't have to have an expensive bending brake if you don't have a shop available where you can work on that. Um, so it's kind of something I started working on, and then we said, no, we've got to finish Dash. We'll put it, put it in our back pocket. But it's, it's something I want to get back to. I've also had an idea of being able to use, you know, these laser cutters are great now. Use a laser cutter to um, basically make an airplane almost solely out of wood, except for the spar caps would be carbon fiber. And then the other thing that I thought about was what if we – wanted to get it down so somebody who isn't a really good athlete but is just sort of a generally fit person could fly the plane forever and ever. Well, I ran the numbers, and if you took three dashes and put them side by side and made a 100-meter wingspan airplane, you get the power for each pilot down to about 200 watts. And that's a level where most people can put it out for significant periods of time. Also, looked at the... Kramer Marathon Prize, and I think the only way that this is going to possibly be won, if it can be won, is with a span-loaded. It's important that it's span-loaded so that you don't have to have a fully cantilevered structure by, you know, placing the pilot separately. But in order to fly as fast as you need to fly for that competition, you have to have a very narrow cord wing, so that's what that would look like. I mean, you're starting to have these almost impossible things. This is probably an aeroelastic nightmare. This is just a suggestion. You probably have some additional king posts here and more truss work and stuff with your, your support wires. But um, the final video I have here, see, see if I can get it to run, is of the Newberry Manflyer, which had two, two pilots, and I think it only flew once or twice. I'm not sure if it even gets off the ground here. But, you know... 
being able to control those heavy masses on this very lightweight weight wing, maybe with today with computers, you could have three independent tails and be sort of flying the, the airplane together so that you don't put too much stress on it. Um, <clears throat> but I think that's the ultimate uh, way to make a, a lower-powered airplane. But I don't know where you would have the room to fly something like that. Only on these dry lake beds, probably. I don't know, do they ever get off the ground on this? I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure if they do or not. Oh, there they go. Well, they got one wheel off. Yeah. Half of it's flying. Ah, they're both in the air. Okay. All right, so that's it. I, I, I don't really know where the future is, but I'm interested to hear what your ideas are. I, to me, the fun thing is to make a plane that people can fly for reasonably long distances and, and have fun. So, okay. Comments, questions? From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.